Thanks for joining us for another OSU Extension Garden Q&A. This session features horticultural experts Nicole Sanchez in Klamath County, Tony Steffen in Deschutes County, and Scott Thiemann in Curry County. This session was recorded live online in late April 2020. My name is Brooke Edmonds. I'm with uh, Oregon State University Extension and I am helping out my fine colleagues today with this garden Q&A. So I'm gonna let uh, maybe Nicole go first and then she can tag who's to introduce next and go from there. Sure, thanks so much, Brooke, and we really appreciate your help facilitating this. I'm Nicole Sanchez, I'm in Klamath Falls, Oregon, where I work for Klamath County Extension with master gardeners, home gardeners, and small uh, fruit and vegetable growers. And I've been here for about four years. And this is an online version of a program we started here in Klamath Falls recently called Garden Gap. And uh, it's an opportunity for you folks to ask your questions about gardening, as opposed to a lot of the programming we do where we come with a set agenda and plan set of notes or talking points. So this is where we're hoping to get lots of questions from you. And I will tag Tony. Thanks, Nicole. Yeah, I'm Tony Steffen from Juice uh, County Extension Service. We serve all of uh, Central Oregon. My position is uh, small farms and um, horticulture instructor. So I, I've been there at this position now for about seven and a half years. And, uh, you know, I help out with training master gardeners, work um, with them as the coordinator in plant clinic. I answer some small farms questions, especially as it relates to uh, grass pastures. And um, I think that's about it. Thanks, I'll pass it on to you, Scott. Okay, thank you, Tony. My name is Scott Thiemann and I'm the Master Gardener Coordinator here in Curry County. Uh, we live in the Banana Belt, <laughs> one of the milder uh, climate areas in the state. So we have some different conditions that we uh, plant and grow by than other areas, especially like Klamath, which can, which can be quite different. So some of the questions we get today may have different perspectives as far as depending where you are uh, planting and we'll look forward to trying to provide a well-rounded answer. Maybe Nicole, we can start with you because it looks like there's a question from uh, Klamath Falls area. Okay, great. So it looks like Linda would like to know what fruit trees and bushes can they plant now in the Klamath Falls area? So the soil's warming up enough now that you, we can start to plant any of those things now. Uh, keeping in mind that fall is also a really good time to plant shrubs and bushes here. And um, I don't wanna discourage someone from planting now, but with Klamath summers being so dry, it's really challenging to keep landscape material, woody landscape material, really well watered in that first year. So regardless of what you choose, you should be committed to doing a lot of watering to get those things established. One of the things that is a benefit in the fall is that's when we tend to have more natural rain and we can allow the plants to take advantage of that and to develop some root systems that will better allow them to access water the following year. And they can do that while they're not supporting a canopy up top. Um, if you really would prefer to plant those things now, 
uh, one of the things that we can do to help alleviate that water issue is to make sure that we actually prune enough off the top. A lot of folks are surprised at how much they might want to prune a tree right at planting time. Um, but having less canopy to support up top can help during that water establishment phase. One more thought um, that's general, um, regardless of what type of fruit tree that you might be planting is that I see a lot of guidance that suggests for newly established trees, we really wanna focus on that heavy establishment watering for the first year. But I would recommend in areas like Klamath that it's at least two years and maybe even three uh, because we just have so very little water during the spring and summer. Tony, do you have anything to add on that? No, that sounds pretty, pretty much like it is here in Central Oregon too. Definitely three years to full establishment. Um, we do recommend some winter watering, uh, especially those first three years. Um, I think we're, well, I'm not sure about if we're drier than you, but we have pretty limited precipitation also. So we just really uh, emphasize the same thing, but we do emphasize winter watering. Okay, here we see folks most successfully focusing on apples and on some of the plums, raspberries and blackberries. Uh, we have a few folks that are successful with blueberries. They tend to have to do a lot of soil amendment and have those in more protected locations. Um, we don't see folks having as much luck with things like peaches and nectarines here in Klamath. Does that also kind of mirror what you all are seeing? Yes, that's uh, for, 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 I'm sorry, Scott, uh, for, for the uh, Ben Redmond Deschutes or Central Oregon region, that is absolutely true. Apples are the number one, switching to pear and Asian pear after that. Uh, peaches, yeah, and then apricots, People will try them, but they're so iffy and, you know, they're so stressed. And I just wonder why you would want to put a, a tree in a stressful environment and you're probably not going to get much fruit. So I try to generally at least mention that. But um, Amy Joa has a really great publication. I don't know if you've seen it, Nicole, or if you, you have something similar but uh, she's got a publication for fruits and berries for Central Oregon. Mm -hmm. I believe it would be really appropriate for the Klamath Falls area. Oh, yes. Yes, uh, we recommend that a lot. Yeah, and so I think that would be, you know, really excellent. Scott. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one, first, going back to fruit trees, uh, basically, I, we have the same suggestions that you guys do, I guess because our climate is cooler. Uh, we can grow certain things maybe around here a little bit more successfully, successfully like figs. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And you can grow peaches. Uh, there's one called frost, which actually performs pretty well if you're going to try. But like you said, that's a challenge, especially with leaf curl. But one of the things I'd really like to mention is if you can plant your trees, and especially here, I'm not so sure with you guys in your cooler climates, but if you could plant it bare root, uh, a lot of trees are ordered bare root through nurseries, and it's a you know good way to go, but they're only available usually a certain time of the year. And one thing I'd really recommend, and I'm sure this is true for you guys as well, is to get um, dwarf trees because they're so much easier to pick. And so looking at the type of, of rootstock that trees would have and going with, um, you know, smaller yeah. trees is going to be much easier 
on um, you as you as the tree grows and fruits. Um, another thing that people often don't think about with fruit trees, I have all sorts of ideas of fruit trees, uh, is that they often don't think about how much how much fruit do you need. Right. You know, so that's another another consideration with just how many and the different types of fruit trees you might get, as well as the ones that require um, cross pollination or not. So there's some other factors to look at, but I, I really, um, you know, we, we, it's fruit trees are, are really popular. People like growing them. They're very productive. And so, you know, I'd encourage people to try. Regarding berries, um, we also have our, our uh, extension agent out of Coos, Cassie, who um, has put together a coastal berry publication. So if people are looking for specific information on blueberries, raspberries, blackberries, that kind of thing, she could offer that through that, those publications as well. Great. I, I really appreciate your point about uh, including the dwarf material. I think that's really important. I try to remember to share that with folks. And um, we might want to move on to the next question so we can make sure we cover lots of folks. Thanks so much. Um, so Audrey has some questions about soils. So it sounds like she might be in the Bend area, but it's probably applicable across your regions. Um, so Audrey started a new raised bed and uh, dumped dry compost. Um, so I'm not sure, it says it hasn't broken down at all. I'm not sure what that means into the bottom of the bed and then is putting a, um, a commercially available, ready to grow mix on top. Um, does that sound okay? Are there other tips that you would give Audrey to best prepare the soil in a raised bed? So you think that one's from the bend area? So let me, let me. I'm guessing because she says uh, to shoots recycling. Okay, yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> that sounds right. So um, yeah, that compost, if it's not aged and it's not really compost, maybe it sounds more like it's just uh, well, I'm, I don't know if it's horse manure or whatever it is, but it doesn't sound like it was really ready to go into the garden in the first place. Um, so when you put, stack one kind of material on top of another in soil, they don't really mix well together. So, uh, you know, first of all, I question that, that, that um, procedure in the first place, but if you're gonna at least do it, try and mix them up at least in the interface, a couple inches of the interface so that you don't get this real um, weird exchange there. But um, so if you've got some nice raised bed mix, I would on top, uh, let me, the, she didn't say how deep the bed is, does she? I don't see that, um, okay. but it sounds like there's maybe some follow-up question about, um, when it gets watered. Oh, she just followed up that it's a 10 inch raised bed. Um, and that sometimes when she waters, the, the water just kind of sits on top. Yeah. So, the, yeah. yeah. I think this really is a discussion we need to have that she and I need to have. It's gonna take us, you know, it could take me 15 minutes to answer this question. Um, so, but, but back to the basic question, if you put, put material into a raised bed, you really want it to be fast, draining lightweight material, uh, mix, blend it with some compost, about 25% compost in that raised bed mix. 
so that it, it drains well and it's equally mixed and so forth. Uh, should be a light, airy material, not native soil, anything like that. Um, so that's the best I can do, I think, for right now. And, and then if she was an Audrey, if she wants to contact me, uh, we can have a, a further discussion on her particular raised bed. Awesome. And I'll just let everybody know that we're going to follow up with you. And so there's some specific resources that we're putting in the chat box. And we'll make sure that you have the contact information of Nicole and Tony and, and Scott so that you can follow up with them directly and have some more communications on that. Um, so I'm going through the list here in the Q&A. Um, does anybody know off the top of their heads about peach leaf borer and cherry trees? There's a question about the timing of setting out lure traps. Peach borer or peach leaf borer? So Julia says peach leaf borer. So this might be one, um, maybe Julia, that we need to, to follow up on, or maybe, maybe you guys are, are experts on peaches. <laughs> Nope, not peaches. Well, I grew, I uh, worked with peaches a lot in the south. So there's a, there's a clear wing moth <clears throat> that is a borer of peach and cherry trees that makes pretty significant holes in the bark and tunnels under the bark um, at the cambium. But I'm not familiar with a leaf borer. That's why I asked that question. So she may have a chance to follow up um, and we can clarify that and come back to it. Sounds good. We'll leave that, we'll leave that question open for a little bit. Um, Audrey has a question and uh, mentions again that this is in the Bend area, but I think this can happen anywhere where we get hot summers. Um, so growing cucumbers and they always get super wilty during the hot summer days and then seem to kind of recuperate and spring back overnight. Um, is this a concern? Is there anything that um, they should be thinking about to reduce this effect? You want to go for it, Nicole, or you want me? Sure, sure. So um, one of the things that I've learned from a lot of the, the commercial folks here, a lot of our small produce farms, is that they actually create a lot of shade, a lot more shade than I would expect during the summer months. So for instance, um, we see sun scald on a lot of things and they uh, uh, alleviate that by putting up just a little bit of shade. If you're growing in um, a greenhouse or tunnel situation, that might be some shade cloth. If it's out in your garden, excuse me, <clears throat> you might um, have some trellising up that you could put some shade cloth over to, to do that with. Um, so that could help tremendously. It's pretty surprising sometimes the temperature difference that you can physically feel just by being on the right side of the shade cloth. So that could certainly be one thing that could come into play. Um, I would also just uh, caution the person to just keep in uh, mind that that phenomenon of wilting during the middle of the day and seemingly coming back is also associated with a couple um, diseases that um, we would want to just have in our awareness. And one we saw in particular a lot of last year was verticillium wilt. That can be a really tricky disease because it can be um, 
very slow acting and, and cause just that symptom with wilt and regeneration, or it can kill things pretty quickly. So it's just something to be aware of. If it's, if it's just a heat issue, um, watering early in the morning and deeply in the morning can also help because the roots have water to draw up um, to help mitigate that heat during the day. So if you were watering in the evening, and seeing that it might be worthwhile to try deep watering earlier in the day and changing the time that the water is available. Something that we see here in Klamath that you likely also have in Bend is that there's a tremendous range between the high temperature of the day and the low temperature at night. And the longer that I'm here, the more I am able to see that that has some pretty profound effects on a lot of our vegetables. And, and one of the things that um, goes on that we don't always get to see, but that has an effect on the plants, is that when that temperature drops really quickly in the evening, it changes the plant's ability to take up water. And the plant doesn't always take the water up as well. And so this contributes to blossom end rot in squash and tomatoes. And it also contributes to edema in a lot of our leafy greens, which we see here really prevalently in the spring. So shading and thinking about making sure watering is deep and possibly in the morning. Those would be my thoughts. So the, the one thing I would include with this is, I think I, I heard that Audrey said that it wilts during the day and it kind of refreshes itself at night. This is pretty common with a lot of plants that they will not be able to keep up with water loss during the heat of the day. But as it cools down, um, they will re regain their, their trigger. Uh, so as long as the plant's doing this, then it's, it's in a good situation still yet. But yeah, I like the watering in the morning too. The shade will maybe help mitigate that. And I really appreciate that you brought up that point that that can be a natural phenomenon. The challenge with it is if it happens a lot, it really cuts into the production, right? Yeah. You can shade and keep that from happening, then she should see more fruit. Indeed. Great, thanks. What's next? Okay. Um, so this is more of a general question from Joyce on plant recommendations. And so I'm gonna maybe have all of you make a recommendation because I'm not sure where Joyce is joining us from. She is looking for a plant that is pretty. So this is kind of a <laughs> subjective question. Does well in shade and is a hardy perennial. Do you guys have any favorites from your area that might be? <laughs> this whole thing is putting y'all on the spot, so you can always pass and you can follow up. I would vote for a stillbe. A stillbe, um, it comes in shades of white, pink, and red. It is a um, spiky flower with kind of a feathery texture. Um, it's going to do somewhere well, somewhere where it is shady and kind of protected in the wintertime. I see it in, they do very well where it's near a home or something like that, where, um, where it's going to have some protection. It also works pretty well as a cut flower. You want to go, Scott, or you want me? I'm ready. Go ahead, Tony. Okay, so I was thinking uh, Bleeding Heart came to my mind when, oh, when yeah. you asked that question. Um, it does really well here in Central Oregon, prefers shade, obviously. Um, again, the, the native form, I believe, is just kind of like that pink variety, but um, 
you can get the the I think it's called the variety uh, luxuriant which will come in pink and white and it's much larger than the native forms but I think that bleeding heart is a good candidate for this question with with the heat that you guys experience um, I just out of curiosity, how do hydrangeas, rhodes do out? If you're looking for something larger, how, how do those do? Pretty well in the shade for you? Are you speaking to me, Scott? Uh, both, yeah. Um, a couple of varieties of hydrangea will go, okay, will go fine here. Uh, one of them being Annabelle, and I can't remember the other one. Ugh. Uh, it's more of a, a cone, a cone-shaped head on it. Uh, paniculata, I think. Yep. They do okay. And um, what was the other one you said? Hydrangeas and azaleas. Azaleas will do okay in the shade here. You know, we don't do a lot of rhodia azalea type stuff, but there's a couple of varieties of azalea that will work. PJM rhodia is about is our best rhodia, and it's also great because it um, is more resistant to um, uh, yeah, root weevils. And so it, it's, it's more resistant to the, root, the adult root weevil damage. Um, and then of course, it's a lot hardier here than just big roadies. May I add just a little detail to your hydrangea points? As you were talking, I was looking up hydrangea in one of my favorite cold climate references. So it's the growing shrubs and small trees in cold climates from University of Minnesota Extension. <clears throat> and you were right on point with that, Tony. So with paniculata, there's quite a few varieties, hydrangea paniculata, that's the panicle one. There's quite a few of those that would be hardy in our area and be able to um, work well. But for the macrophyllas, considering how many of those varieties there are, the choices are pretty narrow. So um, it looks like there's about eight here that are recommended in this particular section. Several of them belong to the Endless Summer Series. A couple of them belong to the All Summer Series, but this is a place where the cultivar selection is gonna be tremendously important because I'd be willing to bet there was probably a couple thousand hydrangea macrophylla cultivars out there but there's probably only less than 20 that would do well in Bend and Klamath Falls. I was just curious because I, I know being a drier climate and hotter, we, we have the situation here on the coast often where you could grow them in shade or sun and definitely in full sun, they tend to do just fine if you know, you're on the coast where it's cooler. If you're in them a bit, then you may struggle a bit more with those. As far as just hardy perennials that do really well, um, if you like ferns, good old sword ferns, um, they they grow again full sun out here as well, but they do really well in the shade. Uh, one of the things that could be a challenge is if it's wet or dry shade. I'm sure for you guys it would be dry. For us, it's somewhere in between probably. But um, you know, ferns do well, and there's a ground cover that a native ground cover that's really not or kind of small ground cover flower perennial called Epimedium that's really delicate looking and does well. And there's some other native plants that seem to like the, sh the shade conditions too. So, I mean, you know, the ones you'll find out in the woods will often do really nicely here on the coast. I hope that's helpful for her. Thanks a bunch. 
It's always fun to hear what people's favorite plants are. <laughs> um, Heidi has a question, and this is an insect related question. It sounds like it's um, kind of an indoor garden or you know, starting transplants on a windowsill. Uh, it sounds like they're dealing with fungus gnats so, um, that are taking over the house and she has all the little um, plant starts. Do you guys have any um, tips on managing fungus gnats? So I can start that one off. So uh, the larvae of the fungus gnat are what are doing the damage. They are in the soil and they have to have a pretty moist soil to be able to survive very well. So one of the things you can do is try watering your plants less often. If you have uh, water underneath that they can absorb up through, um, like in a tray, as is often recommended, um, that is keeping that soil nice and moist and letting it wick up that moisture uh, to create a situation that's really helpful for those larvae. Uh, some folks recommend diatomaceous earth because uh, the rough edges of it can grind against the larva. That's probably only gonna be helpful in this situation if you're actually gonna tease it into the top layer of the soil a little bit because they have to come into contact with it and they tend to feed underneath. Um, BT or Bacillus thuringiensis is also generally uh, really helpful if, if you just have a whole bunch of them and you need to knock them down and not just let it naturally happen through letting the soil dry out. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Bacillus thuringiensis is a naturally occurring bacteria. It's used pretty widely, both in organic and conventional agriculture and horticulture. It should be fairly easy to find at a garden center. And so you would uh, apply that in the soil. Uh, where you're gonna get the best control is making that soil less conducive for the fungus gnats to want to lay their eggs there. Um, a yellow sticky trap might help knock down the flying adults just a little bit in this particular instance, particularly if you were gonna put that yellow sticky trap in a sunny window, because they tend to be attracted to that. So possibly hanging it above where your seedlings are, that will catch a few of them. It's generally not considered a control trap, uh, but it will maybe cut the numbers down a little bit. And particularly as you've done your other treatments, you can use it to make sure that they're not still active. You can create your own sticky trap with a yellow plastic plate covered in Vaseline if you don't wanna buy 50 or 25 or whatever it is that the garden center uh, wants you to have. Because in my experience, they usually get stuck together in the garage before I'm able to use them all in my personal garden. <laughs> I'm just having total like flashbacks of the time when I was a kid and you know those like long coil um, yes. traps the sticky ones and I got one like stuck in my hair so I'm all like ah. <laughs> really off topic me having sweats over here trying to get my hair. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I'm going to stay on the theme of talking about seedlings because Joanne has a question has seedlings in their greenhouse um, what is the best fertilizer for them? This might be one we need to follow up. I don't know, Joanne, you can always um, add a comment to your question if you have, um, want to share what specific plants they are, um, but maybe one of our panelists could talk sort of generally about the timing of fertilizer applications in general. 
I think we need to do some research on that. The, only, the thing I do know about fertilizer with, um, with seedlings is you want a real dilute, uh, like a water-based or something like yes. that, um, uh, and just a real dilute formula of that. Um, so that's my pretty limited knowledge. Nicole yep. or Scott, if you guys, Brooke, if you guys have more to add to that. No, I, I completely agree with that. I, if you're going to use something uh, like one of the water-soluble colored fertilizers that are common, definitely at half strength or less until they have several sets of true leaves, right? And then another thing that um, back in the days when I worked in a commercial garden center, we used B1 starter on all of the seedlings and recommended that for folks when they transplanted as opposed to a full spectrum fertilizer. So um, there's quite a few B vitamin fertilizer um, liquid formulations out there that are intended specifically for seedlings. And the reason that we're looking at these dilute substances is because they can burn so easily, right? And want to do that. So none of the stuff like you would apply on your lawn or that type of thing. There are um, time release granules that you can apply to plants when they're fairly young. But again, I would be looking for multiple sets of true leaves, not just the seed leaves, but multiple sets of true leaves before you decide to do any fertilizer application. And if you're comfortable with it, you might uh, upend one or two and look at what your root development looks like before you decide that you want to apply that. Because typically you want to have a little bit of root development already going on. Otherwise, they're not really able to take it up anyway. Yeah, I'd, I'd keep it. I'd keep fertilizing to a minimum and wait at least a couple weeks until there's a number of leaves on the plant before I did anything. I think people end up going too far on the fertilizer uh, path often th th without the need to do so. It's easy to overlove them. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and Joanne did follow up their vegetables and annuals. And so all of that advice definitely holds true for that yes. group of plants as well. Um, let's see. Uh, that question go? Oh, Joyce had a question. Um, this is back to peaches, but a different different type of critter. So it was attacked by some sort of critter. The bark was chewed away about halfway around near the soil line. Is there anything that they can do to save it? Are there any maybe um, going out in the future, but then also maybe preventing future issues with critters? Well, it, it sounds possibly like it's a vole. Um, voles ha have a real tendency to do that kind of thing. Um, don't know without seeing it, but that's at the soil line, that's often the case. So if there is like grass around the base of it, you might rake that back or kind of weed it back because that gives them shelter or kind of allows them to not be seen and they'd be more likely maybe to do something like that. So keeping, you know, the the vegetation at the base back a bit might help. Uh, if it if it's halfway around, that doesn't necessarily mean that the tree is gone. Um, you know, because if it gets 
it, it would take, it would have to encircle it, you know, but even then, I mean, it isn't a good thing. It's just something that um, it doesn't necessarily mean that the tree is going to be in trouble, I don't think. As far as stopping it, you know, um, it's right at the base. I don't know if any kind of, what you guys think of any kind of screen around it or um, maybe even some something slick or foil or, or, a, or a, a, I can't think of what I want, sheeting of some sort yes. around the base. Sure. I was thinking right along those same lines too, Scott, of some type of metal screening for rodents. And I would take a closer look at the base. They should be able to distinguish rodent damage because the teeth always leave some kind of scrapey marks that you can distinguish. And so um, my mind goes back to the, the peach tree borer. They often exit as a really large larva that causes a lot of problems right at the base of the tree. So that also is a possibility depending on what the diameter of that tree is. If that was the case, you're going to see a bunch of frass, which is a polite way for me to say insect poop. You're going to see a lot of <clears throat> messy biological stuff. There'll be some webbing and, you know, it, it, it just looks completely different from if it is a rodent, it's all going to be cleaner and we should see some tooth marks. So that might help our client distinguish for sure what they were dealing with. Um, and I think definitely some screening is worth a try if they decide, if they figure out it is rodents. Absolutely. And I did put one publication in the chat box. It's about um, meadow voles and pocket gophers. So that might provide some tips and we'll follow up with some other resources too that you can um, take a look at. I know it's really disappointing when you have a beautiful tree and then you yeah. go out and somebody's eating it. You're like, isn't that the truth? <laughs> um, let's see. So I'm still working with Julia on her um, peach borer question. And so what, Julia, we might have to follow up with you because there's two um, insects that have this peach and borer in the name. So one is a twig borer, which it sounds like, um, I'm just going down through the Q&A and Julia says there's holes near the ends of the branches Okay. We're cut off. But then there is the, the, there's a peach twig borer and then there's the other, the peach tree borer. Right. The peach, they're different insects mm -hmm. and the tree borer is more in the, the larger parts of the tree and the trunk. So, um, but it's not listed as being on cherry, which you're saying you're having a problem. So we're going to, we're going to sort this out and make sure um, that you're on the right path for management because it's really important that you know the pest you're dealing with because the management options are usually different <laughs> depending on which critter it is. So um, I'm just telling you that, Julia, so that you're not wondering if we're not answering your question. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, oh, this might be a question for you, Nicole, because it's about goats. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that because Nicole has goats in her backyard. Heidi has a question about goats. What is the best thing to put on tree branches to protect them from her silly goat? Could she wrap it with something? What are some tips for dealing with goats? <laughs> <laughs> um, so 
I'm not sure there's anything you can do. I, you know, goats will eat even like when I trim my rose bushes back, they eat the thorny canes of the rose bush. You know, there's, it's, you know, you might try again, some type of metal screening, but some goats will chew even that. And then you end up with different problems. Like it depends on the goat. If you try that and you see signs of chewing, then you got to take it back off because some of them will chew virtually anything. Um, I'm not sure. Is that a Heidi that's here locally in Klamath Falls? Or she might, I can put her in touch with uh, some other goat folks here in town that can better address that. I do have goats. My kids raise them with 4-H. This is our third year of having goats, but I learn new stuff every day and defer to our 4-H leader that lives next door for most of my goat questions. Let me, let me jump in here if, you, if I might. Oh, great. Thank you. So one thing that I would recommend for something like this is as long as the tree branches aren't too low, I mean, first of all, if she can prune them up, high, that's good. But certainly hog panel would be a great exclusionary device for, for goats. Um, and so, um, you know, using hog panel and T-posts, I mean, pretty simple to put up an exclusionary barrier, uh, full like eight by eight or whatever. Do you mean like in a circle around trees that she doesn't want them to access? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Either the individual trees or if it's like a, an orchard or a grove of trees or, you know, um, panel them off as a block. I mean, hog panel is pretty strong. It would keep the goats out, especially if you put enough T-posts in because you got to get a good fence for goats. I've had goats myself and they, uh, they're, they're pretty tough on fences, but hog panel would be great. Thank you. Yeah, we Appreciate had a, that. a talk earlier this week from our wildlife specialist and the recommendation was like chicken wire, you know, for any kind of critter is not going to be enough and it'll, you know, break down. But the hog panels, hog wire panels, they're like a thicker metal, right? And so yeah, they're pretty good gauge. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so this might be just jumping back a little bit to the discussion we had on the shade perennials. Melissa is joining us from Baker. Any of you have experience with um, gardening in Baker area and how things might be different there than where you're at? And it's okay to pass and we can always get back to Melissa. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that, I think Baker might actually be a little bit uh, easier than Klamath in Central Oregon, um, strictly because of the, I'm not 100% sure, but I think their, um, their summers are a little more gentle than, and, and predictable. But certainly the same ones that we mentioned earlier would, would do fine in Baker also. So I would jump in and just recommend again the series from the University of Minnesota. So um, I mentioned earlier the shrubs and small trees, but they also have one on perennials. So we, we actually, um, our library carries all these so that we can make sure people can access them. But if you're looking for, one of the things that we have to remember, just like was true with the hydrangeas, is that we can't just make a blanket statement for a lot of these perennials and say, oh, you can grow 
hydrangeas because it's only a few of them that are really going to excel in that particular climate. So um, it's great to get reference material on specific varieties of those different perennials. And I really like the way this particular one's laid out. You might think about um, what are you trying to achieve with those shade perennials, right? So are you looking for cut flower material or color or border? And then reference it against that cold hardy stuff. But that um, there are plenty that are going to be available. It's just important to make the right cultivar selection, I think, and not just take general statements about a whole group of plants. So a publication I might also recommend is um, Waterwise Gardening in Central Oregon. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of those plants would be really relevant to um, our area and east, okay, Central Oregon, Klamath, and east, eastern Oregon. So that Waterwise Gardening, um, I think it's called Waterwise Gardening in Central Oregon. Um, but that would be an excellent publication to look through. Uh, our horticulture agent, Amy Jo Detweiler, has done a really nice job in putting in all kinds of different types of plants from trees, shrubs, perennials, ground covers, grasses, and so forth. Excellent resource. Yeah, that one's got a lot of good pictures in it too, so you can visualize what it's gonna look like in your yard. Our clients here really like that one too. And I put a link to that in our chat box and we'll make sure that that also gets emailed out to everyone in case you miss it as it's scrolling by <laughs> all these links coming through. And remember, if you're on the coast, you can grow a lot of these things in full sun. It was time for you to chat, chat, chime in. That was amazing. Scott, Scott, I didn't know you guys had full sun. Oh, stop it. <laughs> you should see it right now. It's just gorgeous. Just gorgeous today. Wonderful. <laughs> Um, Linda has a question that I'm not sure we have the expertise. It's on Hugel culture, and I probably mispronounced that. Um, and so I didn't know if any of you are experienced with this enough to answer it um, here, or if we want to follow up with Linda. She's getting some soil to cover it. Um, are there any other recommendations um, before planting it, um, probably with pumpkins in June in Klamath Falls? Oh, great. And the, oh, that's it in Klamath. So I would love to um, connect with her more and see how that goes. So um, back east, before I came to Oregon, several of the commercial growers that I worked with had just started to really get into the hugel culture. And so for those of you that aren't familiar with it, it um, is basically, um, and I'm being very simplistic here, but you're burying wood large pieces of wood, entire logs, entire trees cut up, covering that with soil. And as that wood decomposes, the idea is that it acts as a water sink and reservoir that would allow you to um, water far less frequently during the summer, right? It became a, uh, actually, I, I thought it was a little bit crazy out on the East Coast where we were because too much water in the summer was often a problem. And so questioned the potential value of um, something that was intended to create a water sink. But when I moved to Klamath Falls where the climate's really dry, I became very interested in that as a research topic. 
So uh, many of you might be aware that in Extension, we are tasked with sharing research-based information whenever possible and really only um, telling stories like I'm telling now in the absence of research. And this story is to tell you that I spent days and days and days doing literature searching, trying to get a good handle on what the body of knowledge is regarding culture. So basically every reference that is out there that exists goes back to the work of two men, one in Austria and one in Germany, I believe, have developed these systems and written about them. Uh, so all of the popular literature goes back to those two guys there, when I did this research, there was a total of two actual university-based research items on Hugel culture. They were from a grad student out in West Virginia and her professor. Hmm. And that was it. And I even used like German translation. I'm like, well, it comes from Germany. Surely some German people have researched it. So in terms of specific research that would exist that says, this method of using the logs or cutting or formulating the logs works better than this one. Burying the logs versus stacking them up on the ground and then putting your earth over top of them. Any of that type of research is that it's going to compare the actual types of wood or systems just simply does not exist. And so I would be very interested to learn more about her experiences. Sounds like you'll be learning together with Linda. yeah that would be a great opportunity i look forward to it see how it does there yeah i can imagine in my area it would just get wet and soggy mess decompose like that um so there is a question mary is joining us from connecticut so we probably can't answer this too um terribly well since we're we have someone from connecticut it sounds like mary is has a question about rhubarb okay um and so Mary, I'm gonna have to follow up with you and get you connected with a local resource um, to know what's causing the holes in the leaves. But I did just have a quick like question for our panelists. Can you guys all grow rhubarb where you're at? Does it is it successful? And yes, yeah. people yep. very successfully grow it here. Yeah, we're gonna have a publication on that here in Central Oregon, so you can pass her that. Awesome. How about you, Scott? Do you yep. have rhubarb and things on the coast? Does it thrive yep. here? It does very well here. Nice. Good to know. Well, I learned something. <laughs> Get the strawberries out. I'm ready for pie. Um, two questions for Nicole on planting dates. And uh, these are both from Joanne. She li would like to know, um, can, can she plant a bleeding heart now? And when is the best time to plant gladiolas, gladiola bulbs? And she's here in our area in Klamath? Klamath County, um, Merrill, I'm probably going to butcher that name because okay. all the Oregon names yep. don't sound like they should. So, You mean Williamette? No. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay. So um, both of those, I, I would say the bleeding heart, if it's available and out there, the soil's warmed up pretty good now. She shouldn't have any issues with that. The caveat, of course, is as she probably already knows is that Sometime in late May or June, we're going to have a hard freeze <laughs> because we always do, or at least a hard frost. So um, all those things that are tender and newly planted, you just want to be prepared to, uh, to protect those things when that time comes and to watch the water. 
uh, to watch the weather, I mean. And GLAD, same thing. I mean, it's probably time to get those out. They're going to be a lot later here than they will be in a lot of other places. Probably um, folks in your area, if they're planting GLAD, they've probably already put those in the ground, I would imagine. Well, that is coming to the end of our, our lit, oh, oh, there's somebody that just popped in with maybe more of a comment. So let me clear that. Okay, one. we also had that um, bulb question that somebody had uh, yeah. questions at the beginning. We had gotten an email question and I'm not sure if the person is on. Oh, I have too many windows open. Um, it was about planting bulbs. So, and I think the question was coming out of the bend area, but um, when is the best time to um, plant bulbs? Should they wait and like transplant them? Sorry, thanks. When's the best time to transplant bulbs? And then also about um, propagating and dividing bulbs. So yeah, um, so the the bulk of the research the good research like from the bulb companies and so forth suggests the best time the absolute best time to divide your bulbs that are too crowded and how do you know if they're too crowded uh they stop flowering or they reduce their flowering you get more mostly foliage and and not many flowers so that's a good indication that that clump of bulbs needs to be divided so um most of the literature says the best time is in the fall that's a that's a bit problem problematic because then you forget where your bulbs are exactly so with that in mind while they're up now go put some markers around whichever clumps you decide you need to to um, divide and transplant um, put some markers around so that you know where the outer boundaries of the of that clump is and then dig them this fall does that mean that you absolutely cannot move them any other time? No. Uh, so you can move them in the spring. Better to let the foliage die down so all those nutrient reserves go back into the bulb and um, give it more energy for when it comes up next year. So let the foliage die down and then do the same thing. Transplant your bulbs. Separate them very gently so that you're not ripping roots apart and so forth. Um, and then you want to bury them, what, two to three times the height of the bulb. Uh, so the worst time, I think, is when they're, when they're actually flowering. You know, that would be, to me, the very worst time to, to try and divide them. Uh, as far as, as breaking off or the little bulblets and so forth, certainly that can be done. And yeah, it's a great way to... Um, increase your plantings. Just remember that the smaller they are, the longer it's going to take to flower. So those little teeny tiny ones, you know, they might take three, four, five years, whereas the larger ones will probably bloom in a year or two, starting off with smaller blooms. And then as they grow, the, the blossom will number and amount will and size will increase. I, I have to share something here that just has happened um, to me. I found in, in my own front yard uh, yesterday that there, I have some tall, like two-tone, just very happy, daffodil-like, I guess I'll call them daffodils, um, coming up. And, and the 
there are actually bulbs half the size of my fist that are being pushed out of the ground from that group. Oh, <laughs> so, <Is> Scott. <laughs> yeah, I this this I don't know if it's desirable or not, but they're beautiful. So I'm definitely gonna take a take them out and. I, I really don't have much choice, I guess, and replant them somewhere else. But they're pushing out of the ground. I mean, they're, I guess they were bulblets not too long ago, but <laughs> very happy. It is time. Yeah. Uh, so it looks like you have another question, Brooke. Yeah. So Heidi has a question about dahlias. Okay. Um, so is it safe to plant them in Klamath or should they wait a little bit longer? And maybe, I don't know if you're all familiar with dahlias and planting dates. So if you want to chime in after Nicole, if you know for your region. So um, I know that they can be very successful here. I would probably have to look up about planting dates. Tony, does that um, bring up the top of your head? The only thing that I would be concerned about dahlias is if the ground freezes and ground's not going to freeze again. I mean, the soil That's right. So that would be my concern. We're past the point of, you know, most likely, I'm not going to say we are, but 99% we're past the point of that ground refreezing down to three or four inches. So to me, this would be a very safe time to plant your dahlias. Yeah, definitely the same. They do very well here on the coast. They grow beautifully. And in fact, you can actually leave them in the ground here and it, I think that's desirable uh, unless you really want to split them up or have to split them up. Um, it's, you can at least several years just let them grow in the same place. And because we don't get the freezes you guys do, um, they're generally, they're safe to, to do that. I'm lucky enough that I can go and have lunch at Swan Island Dahlia's, the big producer oh. and they have big field days where you can go out and like just walk their fields with Mount Hood in the background and so but we have to take ours out of the ground where I'm at too so the diversity in dahlias is just amazing I mean there are so many amazing blooms you could go nuts with uh, yeah they have a they have great catalog I mean you know we all get the seed catalogs and the plant catalogs but that that's one of my favorites. <laughs> and I, I think it's the same for you guys as it is here. It's really wonderful to have them, have them planted because they provide you color later in the summer, mm -hmm. which often can be harder to come by. So it's really wonderful. Right. You know, they, can, they go into November here, at least. <laughs> it's crazy. That's nice. <laughs> We're done here. <laughs> Um, so yeah, if there's any, we're, we're out of questions and we're just about out of time. So that seemed like it was a good match. Um, Nicole, I don't know if you want to say any wrapping up things. Um, otherwise, we'll uh, compile any questions that we weren't able to answer live and we'll get some more resources to you so you're not left hanging wanting to know about your, question, about your questions. Yeah, that's great. I'm particularly interested in connecting with the person with the Hugo culture and I'd be glad to try and help with the peach borer one as we move forward. I just hope this is a helpful format that people enjoy. And I especially appreciate you guys, my coworkers, helping make it possible. Thanks so much to you and to Tony and Scott. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it has. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for everybody who participated and had questions and just listened in. It was fun. 
Bring your so, friends next time. That's right. We'll, we'll shoot for another one in a couple weeks. All right. Well, I'm going to end this for all and have a wonderful afternoon. Yeah. All right. Thanks a bunch. Bye. Thanks. Thanks for joining us and check out more great gardening information online at extension.oregonstate.edu.